I'm standing on the Mount of Olives in the midst of a garden of olive trees that is exactly like what Jesus would have experienced on his final journey into Jerusalem, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's certainly a modern setting behind us is the road and traffic and modern day Jerusalem over there. But this environment, it really sets the stage for something that, well, I've read about for years you start really feeling the experience when you're in this context. The Bible says that Jesus went out as usual. 
to the Mount of Olives. It was his usual practice to, to get alone with God, to go to a quiet place. But this time, it was anything but usual as he was on his way to finally fulfill his promise for redemption, to die on the cross. It was here he came. It was such agony that he, in this place, sweat drops of blood. I mean, he was physically being brutalized by, by the thought of taking the sin of humanity on himself. But in the end, he didn't go with his feeling. He didn't try and force God onto his agenda. He, he said, nevertheless, as hard as this is, as much as I don't want to, not my will, but your will be done. And in so doing, he fulfilled the greatest act of grace and compassion the world has ever experienced. And as I spend time contemplating what Jesus was doing in this garden, one of the things that absolutely amazes me is that as he was wrestling with his circumstances, as he was wrestling with God's will over his will, and he finally concluded, no, I'm going to do what you want. He, he was doing it to please the Father, but he was also doing it because he was thinking of us and our needs. One of my favorite passages is John 17, where he's talking about how he's living this out, not just for those who were there then, but for those who would believe in future generations. Think about this, when Jesus was wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane and praying, he was thinking of us. He was thinking of you. And it really did happen right here on the side of this mountain on the way to the cross. It was the worst moment of his life, Judas was minutes away from betraying him with a kiss. All of his followers were getting ready to desert him and he was going to suffer incomprehensibly, physically and spiritually, and, and really he knew he was going to die. And yet he chose to do the same thing he usually did. He chose to get alone with God and pray in one of his favorite places, the Garden of Gethsemane. Understanding why Jesus did this can forever change our lives today, and that's the focus of our conversation this weekend. But first, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for Jesus' example in life and in words, and I ask you that you would help us to truly receive them, understand them, and apply them in our lives so that in following him, our lives can be forever transformed in the good times and the bad. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, it wasn't hard to figure out what I thought of my dad. I mean, it was as easy as watching my behavior toward him. And so when I was a really young child, I'd 
I'd run to meet my dad when he walked into our house. I'd follow him around and always try and engage him. He, for me, as a young kid, was larger than life. I, I just wanted to be near him. I, I wanted to get his attention. I, I really wanted him to see me. He was my dad. And then I became a teenager. Everything changed. All you had to do is watch my behavior. It became obvious. When he walked into the house, I'd run to my room or I would leave the house myself. I'd try to avoid my dad at all costs. I, I didn't want him to see me. There was just too much accountability in that. And the difference is pretty obvious. When I was young, I saw him as my everything, strong, wise, Good. When I was a teenager, I saw him as my enemy. He was standing in my way. He was standing between me and what I wanted to do. He was an authority who, in my naive mind, was messing up my life. Because of him, I couldn't do whatever I wanted. Just curious, can any of you relate to this parent-child dynamic? Yeah? All right. Over time, I've learned that the same dynamic is true between God and us. It's not hard to figure out what I think of God. I mean, all you have to do is watch my behavior toward him. And the same is true for you. The same is true for all of us. Which brings me to the truth of this weekend's conversation. Those who genuinely know, love, and trust God as Father, run to Him. I mean, look at Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong fortress. The godly, those who know, love, and trust Him as Father, the godly run to Him and are safe. Those who really know and love and trust God as Father seek Him. They don't try and avoid him or ignore him. They seek him. Psalm 63, 1, David's the great author of this sentence, and it's so true. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. When you really know him and love him and trust him as father, you, you do whatever you can with as much fervency as you can muster to, to seek him. Those who really know God and love him and trust him as father, they run to him, they seek him, they call on his name. I mean, Genesis 13, 4, it's, it's said of Abram, who became Abraham. He's really the father of all faith. And it says there, Abram, who knew and loved and trusted God as father, proved it by his behavior. He called on the name of the Lord. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but... But that's what God's people were called in the past. You know how God's people were at one time, they're called the Jews. God's people have been called Christians, Christ followers. Did you know in the beginning, God's people were called by this name, those who call on the name of the Lord. That's what set them apart. They knew God, they loved him, they trusted him. So they did what comes naturally to people who know and love and trust him. They called on the name of the Lord. That, that was their name, that was their identity. And just so you know, the Bible actually calls those 
who are opposite of those who call on the name of the Lord by the opposite name. Look at Psalm 14, 4. Will evil, evildoers never learn? You know, those who, who don't know God, who don't love God, who don't trust with God, you know, those who devour his people as men eat bread. Here's how you can identify them. Just look at their behavior. They do not call on the Lord. Genuine heartfelt praying is the difference between those who genuinely know, love, and trust God and those who don't. And this is relevant to the Garden of Gethsemane because this is why Jesus chose prayer in the moment when he was facing the worst of life. It's because he genuinely knew God and loved God and trusted God as his Father. And so when everything went south, he ran to him. He sought him. He, he called on him. I think this calls for us to ask ourselves a question. What's the truth about us? I mean, I know we call ourselves, many of us do. If you guess, you might be here or even a regular tender and seeking, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. But most of us would call us, we're, we're Christians, we're Christ followers, you know? That's what we call ourselves. But, but I'm just wondering, who or what do we really tend to call on or look to in our lives? Is it God the Father or is it someone else or something else? Who or what do we love and trust? Really, you can see it by your behavior. Is our life defined by running to God or running away from him, just ignoring him maybe, living as if he doesn't really exist? Now, Jesus is the great example of running to God, always calling on God's name. In fact, here's the example he gave us. Jesus taught us this truth about if you really love God and trust him, you'll run to him, seek to him, and call him. He, he taught us this truth in two big ways. First, by his life. I mean, I don't know about you, but the weight of someone's words that are contrary to their behavior have no weight at all. But the weight of a person's words whose life is actually evidencing what they're saying, huge gravitas in that. And that was Jesus. He, he taught us that if you really know and love and trust God, you're going to call on him. He taught us this by his life, the way he lived. Look at Mark 1.35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This was the custom of his life. This is just one example. And what I really like about Mark 1.35 is that it followed a day of extraordinary investment, if you read Mark 1. I mean from early in the morning before to very late at night, I mean late, he was pouring himself out spiritually, physically, emotionally into people's lives. And I, I, I don't know it at Jesus' level, but I, I have these busy times when I am pouring myself out, you know, on the weekend, giving th three talks that you see and investing in tons of people's lives and doing many other things for ministry. And when I'm pouring myself out for long periods of time, I'm telling you what the next day is for me. It is comatose day for me. You know, I go through the cycle of depression, writing my resignation, you know, binge watching something on Netflix or Hulu, and, 
you know, I mean, just you name it because it's exhausting. But after this huge expenditure of energy, what did Jesus do the next day before the sun came up? He went out to a solitary place where he could pray. Why? Because he really knew God and he really loved God and he really trusted God and he understood that disconnecting from God in any way is what lessens life. Prayer was literally at the center of everything Jesus did during his earthly journey, even at the center of this worst moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, even at the center of his death. Oh my gosh, on the cross, what was he doing? Praying, talking to the Father. It's the first thing he did. It seems to be the last thing we do. But he didn't just teach it by his life. He taught it with his words. He spoke it to us all the time, talking about, man, you need to get with the Father. You need to turn to him. And in fact, one of the great lessons he gave us was in giving us a lesson on how we should pray. He says, you need to pray. You need to make it the centerpiece of your life. And in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, he said, this then is how you should pray. I mean, don't pray ritualistically, redundantly. Don't pray out of routine and habit. This is how you should pray. This is how I pray, he was saying. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, as is often true of us in our humanity, we try and take the complex and turn it into a TV sitcom, right? We, we try and take the complex and make it an easily solved narrative in 19 minutes with commercials. That's just what we do. And this is what religion has done with the Lord's Prayer. We have done exactly what Jesus said not to do with it. We've turned this into a routine ritual that we speak that doesn't connect to anything internal at all with us. I got to do my duty, get my gold star, and maybe I'll get another wish this week from God the Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. My kingdom come, your kingdom come, not mine, sorry. God, I know I'm living for my kingdom, but I'm supposed to say it this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, give us this day, a day of the bread. We know you won't, but you know. And forgive us our sins. Boy, too many to mention. And help us to forgive others. Yeah, we're not going to do that today. And uh, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And I think there's some stuff at the end. Kingdom, power, glory, something like that. Amen. And yet, in the context where he taught us how to pray, he says, do not pray repetitious words that are attached to no meaning. And yet, that's exactly what we do. And then we wonder why he's not coming through. Where's my wish? We rubbed the lamp. We said the Lord's Prayer. How'd that look, by the way? I don't even... <laughs> Here's the reality I want you to be aware of. This is so important. The Lord's Prayer is our pattern for calling on God. He said, this is how you should pray. Look at... When he was saying that, this, he was saying, you want me to teach you to pray? 
You, you're watching my life and seeing how I'm interacting and connecting with Father and the impact in my personal life. Then let me teach you how to pray. This is how you should pray. It's how I pray with one little ad. He, he knew we had to ask forgiveness when he didn't have to ask forgiveness, but he certainly did pray about forgiving others. And he said, this is your pattern. And it's your pattern in good times and bad. We often take God's teaching and apply it in good times. What bad times come, we get ticked off and we start pushing them away and we stop doing it. But not Jesus. In the worst moment of his life, what did he do? He did what he always did, the usual. He connected with God. And if you want to experience the power of God's promise and fullness in your life, you have to do what Jesus taught us to do and showed us to do. So let me help you to understand best I can with my limited abilities to, to see the pattern of prayer he was laying out for us, to see what he was doing in the garden. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, no matter what we're experiencing, good, bad, high, low, here's where we start. We acknowledge who God is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus went to the garden because he was living in a world where it seemed like Rome was in control. Caesar, a lunatic, was destroying the entire world. That his life was in the hands of a chaotic, evil empire. And there was no getting out of it. That he was in the current of an unfair world and unfair things were happening to him. I mean, everything was going wrong. He was the best of men being treated like the worst of men in the worst of times. Nothing felt right. And so what did he do? He went to the garden and he had to remind himself who the real God is. You're our Father in heaven. You're above all this mess. Hallowed be your name because you're bigger than all of this. In the worst of times, in the best of times, we have to just find that place where we acknowledge who God is so we don't forget to put him at the center of our focus in lives or we will blow it and destroy ourselves. When we acknowledge who God is, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, you know what we're doing? We're saying, and this is what Jesus was saying in the garden, man, oh man, it seems like Pilate's in control and these pagan Jews are in control, the ones who are putting me on the cross, these crazy people who aren't living like true people of God. It's like they're in control. But Jesus was saying, but God, I know you're in control. When we acknowledge who God is, we're saying he's the one who's able to do the impossible, work even through the worst of times, that he's the one who provides where he guides. He's not taken his hand off of us. He hadn't taken his hand off of Jesus. We're acknowledging that he's the one whose timing is always perfect, even though his timing never matches mine. And here's what I've learned. I don't like it when God's timing doesn't match mine because I want my timing because I think I should be in control of my life. But the truth is, every time I take control of my life, I blow it. His timing's perfect. And I have to decide in that moment to acknowledge who he is. Your timing's perfect. And that's what Jesus was doing. When we acknowledge who God is, we're saying he's the one whose plans are always perfect, even when it seems like our life is anything but perfect. 
because his plans for us are always perfect. Whatever he's allowing us to experience in the moment, no matter how it feels, no matter how it looks, no matter how it seems, it's ultimately perfect for us. And I can't tell you how often I have to just say, God, you're God and I'm not. And I have to acknowledge that I believe that your plan's perfect for me. Even though it feels anything but perfect for me. When we acknowledge who God is, we're saying he's the one who sees everything. He's not missing what's going on right now. He's not missing these events. He's, he's a part of them, even when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It all fits into his wonderfully grand plan. And so Jesus in the garden was saying, I know you're seeing this, and I know you're watching, and I know this fits into your plan, and I'm not acknowledging you as God my Father. When we genuinely pray the Lord's Prayer, no matter what we're experiencing in the moment, good or bad, we are surrendering our will to His. We surrender our will to His. This is what Jesus was doing in the garden. You know how you can know that Jesus was literally praying through the prayer like He taught us to do? All you have to do is listen to the parts of the prayer we get. He was saying, you know, God, I, I really, you know that cross thing we talked about? It sounded like a really good plan. But now that I'm in the middle of it, I don't want to do it. In my humanity, I need you to take this cup from me, this, this thing. I can't, I, I don't want to do it. But then he said this, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. He's saying, in this moment, I want you to help me to get what I want, but more than what I want, I want to please you, I trust you, I love you, and so I'm saying, don't give me what I want, give me your kingdom come and your will be done. That's what he was praying. He was surrendering his will to the fathers because he loved him, he trusted him, he knew him. Can I just tell you, if we don't do this, and often we don't, we're going to get off track and we're going to quit. This is exactly what Jesus did in the garden. Not my will, your will be done. It's the only way we'll ever experience the fullness of God's plan and promises in our lives. Sadly, too much of our praying is directed at asking God to help us build our kingdom. It's about helping us to accomplish our will. It's sad, but true. And it's very wrong. I just look through your prayer list, if you have one. Just recount what you've asked God for in the last month. And I promise you, if you're at all like me, and you probably are, most of the list isn't about God helping you to fall in love with his plan and his kingdom and his will and his ways and his truth. Most of your prayer is asking him to get on board with your plans and your wants and your wishes and your kingdom. And we wonder why God doesn't show up. He's not going to help you build a kingdom of darkness. He wants in you to build a kingdom of light. But to do it, we have to say, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Our will, no matter how good or right it feels, when it's contrary to God's will, always leads to the wrong place, to negative consequences. So here's 
a question that can benefit us all spiritually, I think. How much would my life have changed last month if I'd been living for God's kingdom and will instead of mine? A lot for me. When we genuinely pray the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus did, for the reason he prayed, to acknowledge who God was, to submit his will once again to God so that he wouldn't disappoint the Father whom he knew and loved and trusted. When we genuinely follow him in that and pray this prayer, no matter what we're experiencing, we look to him for what we need. Give us today our daily bread. You know what Jesus was looking for in the garden, right? For the strength he needed from the Father in that moment. If we don't ask God to meet our needs, if we don't look to him to meet our needs, we'll ultimately compromise our integrity or take things into our own hands to get what we want, what we think we need. I'm watching people do it in my close circle. I'm watching people do it in this family. I watch myself do it at times where when I'm not looking to God to meet my need, I start doing all the wrong things in all the wrong ways to try and meet the need on my own. And it just leads to more darkness and to more loss and to more longing that never gets satisfied. Sadly, this is where the majority of people live. It's destructive. Don't let it be where you live. When we genuinely pray the Lord's Prayer, no matter what we're experiencing, when we follow Jesus into the garden moment on a daily basis, in the usual and the unusual, what we're doing is we're receiving God's forgiveness and giving our forgiveness. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And uh, he didn't have to say, forgive me my debts. He was sinless. But he did need strength and grace and help from the Father in his humanity to forgive others. If we don't receive his forgiveness, we'll make choices motivated by our guilt and our darkness and our desire to cover up the shame. If we don't receive his forgiveness, we will walk in guilt instead of grace. If we don't receive his forgiveness, we'll feel like our circumstances in life are God's punishment instead of God's leading. And that he's giving us his worst rather than his best. And, and by the way, forgiving others is essential. Because in forgiving others, we, we literally open the prison cell of bondage that we're consumed with because of the destructive anger that develops in us when we are hurt or disappointed or failed by other people. Forgiving, releasing the anger is productive and life-giving. This is why Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That was why he stopped at the garden. That's why we need to. Can I just ask you, are you holding on to any bitterness in your life that's driving one more bad decision after another? That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Remember who God is? 
I know the people who are hurting you and what it looks like, this world of chaos, but remember who God is. He's in control and he's able. Submit your will to him because, I mean, with all this dysfunction going on in this world, your will is going to take you the wrong way. You need to submit to his will. Not my will, your will be done. I know you have needs, but if you try and supply them for yourself, you're going to blow it. So don't, man, turn to God and, and say, God, meet my needs today. You know what they are. And, and God, you're going to have to forgive me because, man, I'm carrying some guilt. And you're going to have to help me forgive others because I am so filled with poison of hatred. When we genuinely pray the Lord's Prayer, you know, when we, when we make the right pit stop, at the Garden of Gethsemane, no matter what we're experiencing, we in the end trust him for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. A lot of people say, wait a minute, if Jesus was trusting God for protection, man, did God the Father let him down. Dude, he got betrayed, he got beaten to a pulp, and he died on the cross. All the way, he was leading Jesus to fulfill the unbelievable plan of redemption that Jesus signed up for himself as the Son of God. And here's what you need to remember. Yeah, boy, oh boy, the journey through the valley was really tough. But where is Jesus sitting right now? At the right hand of God. Read Philippians 2, the most exalted in the entire universe because he's the only one that ever trusted God to this level. If we don't trust that God's protecting us, we're going to start buying into the lie that he's deserted us, and many of us have. If he's going to check out on me, I'll check out on him. It leads to very destructive choices. When circumstances get tough, we're going to run away like the disciples in the garden rather than like Jesus running to the Father, trusting ourselves to him, trusting ourselves to his leading, no matter how we feel or what we see. When we trust him in the end, he always gets us to the right place, just like he did with Jesus. And sadly, most of us never get to the right place because we just can't trust him when we experience our own Judases and our own kisses of betrayal. Everything in you longs to get to the right place. And most of us never get to the right place because we just can't trust God in the worst of our moments. Which brings me to the application to this truth, the place where it can really change our lives dramatically. If we want to honestly know where we're at in our relationship with God, we need to honestly evaluate our behavior towards him. Now, I really think, because it was in my own thinking as I was trying to develop this, this application for myself and then as a part of a conversation with you, I, I bet you for many that's a left-handed application. It's like, what? I mean, you've been talking about the Lord's Prayer and all this different stuff, and shouldn't the application be that, man, you know, you should, like, do the Lord's Prayer every day and do all that stuff. That, no. Because what will happen is if you don't evaluate yourself, you'll say it as if everything's A-OK. -okay. You won't really pray in a way where you're deeply connecting the reality of your need to the fact that God is. 
that you need to surrender to his kingdom because yours is so messed up and your wants are so messed up and that you need to look to him for your need and all these things in the Lord's Prayer, it'll never happen until you evaluate yourself. If we want to truly know where we're at in our relationship with God, we need to honestly evaluate our behavior towards him. Because like I said about with my dad, I knew exactly where my relationship was with my dad by my behavior. Can, can I ask you just, just for a minute? Where's your behavior tell you you're at with God the Father? Matthew 7, 20 says, by their fruit you'll recognize them. Jesus was telling us that, hey, all you have to look at is the behavior of a person's life, the outward workings of a person's life, and you'll know whether they're trusting God or not. Now, I can fake you out, and you can fake me out, but I can't fake myself out, and you can't fake yourself out. What's the fruit of your life? I mean, are you running to him or away from him? Are you seeking him or ignoring him? Are you calling on him or trusting in yourself? What's your behavior towards him? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So ask yourself, what's my behavior towards him? When was the last time I made the Garden of Gethsemane my common experience? I love that passage in Luke where he's saying, as was his usual, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. When was your last garden experience with God? I, there's so many ways you can go and so many questions you can ask yourself, but I just authored two big ones. And so I, I hope that you'll stick with me on this and, and then stick with me through the application of them. The first one is, what's your behavior towards him? Have you ever called on his name? Romans 10:13. everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you ever called on his name? Now, by the way, I, I know what it's like to answer that question based upon superficial behaviors. I'm not saying if you've ever said something that is labeled a prayer, you've called on his name. That's not it. I mean, calling on his name is about doing what Jesus taught us to do in the Lord's Prayer, where you're acknowledging who he is for real, where you're saying, not my will and kingdom. I'm not wanting you to be the genie to make my world better, but I'm wanting you to use me to make the world you want to make. And I'm praying to you to meet my needs and asking you to forgive me and to help me forgive, asking you to protect me. Have you ever called on his name? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If not, this is your moment. And I, just before I ask the next large question that applies to all of us, I, I'm just going to invite you. Would you just pray with me just for a minute? I mean, just honor this moment. Make this the most spiritual moment in the whole morning. And just bow in prayer. And if you're here, if you're engaging this talk somewhere around the world, and you're saying, I've just never really experienced Jesus change me, save me, forgive me, this is your moment. Call on his name. I'm going to pray, and you can take my words 
but make them the expression of your heart to God. In your heart, not out loud, but in your heart. Just say, Jesus, right now I'm calling on your name. Because I desperately need you. I'm guilty of sin and failure and darkness. But you died on that cross so that I could be forgiven. And you rose again to give me new life. And so I'm asking you, take my sin, I confess it. Forgive me and make me new. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you just prayed with me, I really want to encourage you, just let us know. We want to help you so much. It's, we want to give you a Bible if you want one, not if you don't. We want to give you ideas for next steps if we know what you're looking for. We don't want to invade your life. We want to support you in your life. And best way we know how, if you just prayed with me, send us a text. The number is 313131. And the message is Northridge, one name, Northridge. And then we'll send you a link, and it'll take you about a minute to fill it out, and you can tell us what you want from us and what you don't, and, and we'll respond and try and come alongside and help you. But once you've called on his name, there's another question you need to ask. This is the question that I have to perpetually ask myself. Because I, I live in the rationalization often on a daily basis that I've called on God's name a lot. I mean, you know, I've been a senior pastor here for 29 years. If you knew what I knew about you, you'd know how many times I've called on God's name for us, you know? But, but so I can like excuse myself, oh, I've called on God's name a ton. But that's not the question that helps me today. Here's the question. Am I calling on his name today? Are you calling on his name? First Thessalonians 5.17, I mean, two words, powerful verse. Pray continually. Why did Jesus go to the garden on the way to the cross? <laughs> because it was the usual pattern of his life. He prayed continually, acknowledged who God was, surrendered his will to God's, let God be the one that meets his needs and help him to forgive others and, and to protect him. And, and here's the question. I hope you'll stick with me on this because a lot of you are going, well, how, how do I call on his name continually? How does that work? Well, the way Jesus taught us was by his life and words. And what it means is there's got to be a constant dependence on him, which means there needs to be a daily recommitment of dependence on him. And so on a daily basis, we, in good times and in bad, as the usual practice of our lives, when we feel the need and when we don't, when we want to connect with God and when we don't, we connect with God. And what we do is we open the Bible, his word to us. And I know it can be hard to understand. My parents talked to me a lot during life when I didn't understand a word they were saying. I'm okay, when I was an infant. Oh, you're so cute, you're so great, you're so awesome. Is that gas or is that a smile? Isn't that awesome? And all this different stuff they said. I didn't understand a word of it, but they're speaking into my life when I didn't understand what they were saying made a difference in my life all the way through to when I did understand what they were saying. We need to open his word. We need to hear from him. For me, I try to keep it fresh. I do it differently every year. I don't just read through the Bible the same way every year, but the, every day I want to 
hear from God. I want his word to guide my thoughts and instruct my choices. And then I want to share my heart with God as Jesus taught us, like Jesus did in the garden. You know, he told God how he felt and what he wanted. He didn't want to go to the cross. So many of us sanitize our prayer life. It's ludicrous. Okay, God, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm doing great. Thank you for loving me. Everybody's good. Everything's okay. And God's looking at you and saying, you're an idiot. <laughs> he wants you not to share what you want him to hear from you or you think he wants to hear from you. He wants you to share your heart. That's what Jesus did in the garden. I don't want to go to the cross. This is hard. But then he did what he taught us to do. He acknowledged who God was. He surrendered his will to God. He asked God to meet his needs. He, he dealt with forgiving others, and he trusted God to protect him and to get him where he was leading. We, we have to do the same thing daily. And you want to know how you keep it fresh? A lot of people say, how do you keep it fresh? You keep it fresh. Now, get me. This is, this is so important. You keep it fresh by keeping it real. Every marriage gets stale when you don't keep it real. Every relationship gets stale when you don't keep it real. Every job loses any ounce of meaning when you don't keep it real. Your relationship with God will always be fresh if you keep it real. If you're experiencing Him and His touch in your real place of need, not in your sanitized religious expressions. Keep it real. I mean, that's where we keep it fresh. And then, let me give you the action step, okay? And this is, I really worked on this because I really wanted to translate this to you. Here's, here's one action step I'd recommend. You need to find your Gethsemane. You need to find your Gethsemane. And by that, I mean you need to find that place where you will connect with God as a part of your usual so that when you experience the unusual, you're ready. You need to find your Gethsemane. And just to help you, I thought, you know, because I put my pants on one leg at a time, I struggle with this as deeply as any of you, maybe more, struggle with this. And so I thought I'd just share my thing. I, I thought I'd share a picture of my Gethsemane with you. And by the way, I wish it was as beautiful as the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, you know, olive trees all around, outdoors, isn't that cool? But I live in Michigan, that sucks. So, uh, so here's a picture of my Gethsemane. I mean, that is, that's ragged, man. I want to just notice this. Do you see the oil and junk from my hair and my neck on the back of that cushion? Just know, we know about laundry and washing. It's just that those pillows don't detach from the couch. Don't ever buy a couch with pillows that don't detach. I mean, it's just stupid. And you can see the indentations, you know? I mean, it's like it's filthy, it's dirty, it's there. You can see my butt mark in the bottom cushion. I mean, it's right there. That's my Gethsemane, where I connect with God. This week, I'd love love, love, love to see your Gethsemane. 
And, and we can connect with each other. This thing called social media can be used for very bad things, but it can be used for very good things. And why don't you take a picture and, of your Gethsemane and post it on your social media of choice, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, and then tag Northridge so that we can all see it. And use a hashtag. Hashtag's just the number symbol in front of something. And use the hashtag prayer place so we can each of us see our Gethsemanes. And what do we do in the Gethsemane? What Jesus did in Gethsemane. We call on God, the one we love and know and trust. And I can't think of a better way to end this service than doing that together right now. So would you stand with me and say with me the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. we'll see you next time.